For our Old Testament passage, uh, today we're going to read from Psalm 34. Of course, the scripture selections for today reflect the idea that there is a about the community that is gathered, not only in this life, the church in this life is known as the church militant. Uh, the church that has gone on to their reward is known as the church triumphant. And so on All Saints Day, uh, we celebrate this idea that whether on earth or in heaven, we are one body, one in Christ Jesus. Psalm 34 I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In the last verse of the psalm, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we read once again from 1 John chapter 4, this time verses 7, 8, and 9. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The word of the Lord. And God bless you. you. May be seated. We join our minds and hearts together in today's collect. Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your Son, Christ our Lord. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God in glory everlasting. Amen.
All right, so we've been in this uh, passage, kind of sauntering around the end of chapter 3, camped out between chapter 3 and 4, made forward progress into chapter 4, but we took a look at the end of chapter 3 at John's statement. I'm talking about the spirit whom God has given us, and we borrowed uh, William Barclay's title there, the surging life of the spirit. And we camped out between chapters three and four for a few Sundays. This is this is uh, the 61st, if, if my numbering is correct. The 61st Sunday we've spent on this subject, this is the life. We camped out there and spent four or five Sundays talking about how is it that God's spirit comes and takes up residence, that Christ comes and abides in us. Then we moved into chapter 4 with uh, cautionary words directed toward us, uh, little children, beloved. Uh, Don't trust every spirit in the world, but we are to test or try the spirits. And so we once again borrowed uh, Barclay's phrase, the perils of the surging life of the spirit. Now, last week, we got stuck on that word greater, right? Why do we get stuck on that word greater? Because the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within us is greater, right? This is verse 4 of chapter 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Monday morning, I woke up and realized that we had read that word greater before, all the way back in chapter 3, where John is talking about our hearts, 319, wow. So it was right before that. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. So picking up on that theme greater this morning, I woke up and I heard these words, greater love has no man. And I thought, dear Lord, is that that verse in the book of 1 John 2? So then I Googled it and I found, if you look over here in in the Gospel of John, it, it is a John writing, a Johannine a Johannine writing, John chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say that someone would lay down his his life for his family. He doesn't say lay down his life for, and of course in this passage, Jesus has said, I I don't treat you as servants anymore, I treat you as friends. It is a term of endearment. When my mother and father were in a horrible automobile accident, this had to be around 1966, I think it was, maybe 67. 
they had driven to Hartford from where we lived in North Brantford. It's, it's probably a 50, 55 mile trip to go to a rally at a small church in Hartford on a Saturday night. Uh, after the service was over, they went out with some folks. I think it was the pa- ostensibly the pastor and his wife to encourage them a pizza joint. And um, I can remember it distinctly because I was sitting in in the front room, the living room at 94 Valley Road. And they had already left. My father had a, uh, a 1968 Oldsmobile Starfire convertible, used car. And they had left in that car, but the windshield wipers weren't working, so they came back. And my father had an old snub-nosed Ford van that he used for work, had all his tools in the back. He stuck his, I, I, can, I can still hear his voice, he stuck his, he didn't even come in the house, he just opened the door and stuck his head, he said, Al, we had to come back to get the van because the windshield wipers weren't working on the car. Close the door. Uh, my sister and I, we went to bed, we were waking around, Oh, it must have been 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning by another minister and his wife telling us that they'd been hit by a drunk driver on a wet street on their way home. My father, when he saw what was happening, he saw this car down the road, and it was this was his own testimony. He said when he saw it traveling at a high rate of speed and it was beginning to cross the center line, He said, when I knew that we were going to be hit by that car, he said, I turned the wheel all the way to the right so that as much as possible, the brunt of the impact would be on my side and not on your mother's. And as a result, uh, my mother wasn't hurt as bad as my father. My father uh, broke both legs in five places. They just figured... uh, when we went to the hospital early Sunday morning, they didn't know. Of course, they don't have the uh, technology that they do nowadays. Uh, they just assumed they put him in a cast. Said we don't know how to fix it. He's probably not going to live anyways. Then they said, "Well, he's going to live, but he's always going to be in a wheelchair." And then they said, "Well, he's always going to be on crutches." And they said, "He's always going to be on a cane." And then finally. <laughs> It's a Jacob struggling with God story because he walked with a limp the rest of his life. You don't know what you would do in a situation like that until you were presented with that situation. You would say, what a noble thing. I hope I would have the courage to do that, but we just don't know. But it it demonstrates what Jesus is talking about in this passage is that the Christian's normal attitude in life, is that my life is worth less than yours. So the title of this message this morning, I'm, I'm going to give it the, the title, The Love Problem. The Love Problem. Father, thank you that even when we persisted in being in animosity with you. We hated you. 
while we were still enemies, nothing was solved. There was no solution forthcoming. You sent your son to die for us. We don't fully comprehend it. Uh, We live in a human realm, in a fallen world, where the dynamic of our everyday life is much different than that. We like the people that we like. We love the people that we love. And the people who don't like us and even the people that we don't, that, that hate us, we return the same. We don't like them and we hate them back. So this call to love is is a problem for us. Help us in this season in our lives and in the days that are to come to walk out this perfect call to love, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We'll start this with a, it's a relatively long quote from David Wells, um, but it's a cogent quote and it, it is particularly applicable to the day and age in which we live. He's written several books, but this was uh, this is taken from the book entitled The Courage to be Protestant, and his basic premise is that in days bygone, particularly in the days of the Reformation, for you to be classified as a Protestant, which was a slang term, it was a, a term of derision, Um, that was applied to non-Catholic Christians, it could very well cost you your life. I'm reading a a book, an introduction to John Owen. John Owen lived in in the 17th century. He was a nonconformist, meaning that he felt that people had the right in England to worship as they saw fit, not in the prescribed church, the, the Anglican church, the Church of England. The man had 10 children, and all 10 of those children died before he did. We would say, well, obviously, this is God speaking that you're on the wrong path, John Owen, in your call to be a Protestant. He wrote 8 million words, 8 million words. After one of his children died, he wrote the book, you can still read it today, He was a high Calvinist. The title of the book was The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I've never heard, read a title that had the word death in it three times, but this man's life was overwhelmed with loss. Uh, You think about uh, being crucified on a cross, and that cross is mounted on a sandy beach, And when the tide comes in, you're going to drown. There was a cost associated with something that we take for granted. Now in America, there's no price associated with being a Protestant. It doesn't cost us anything. Although it's hard to believe it's getting cheaper every day. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lost his life in April of 1945, just about when when the war was to be over and Germany was to be overrun by Allied troops. They purposely took him out and hung him because he was part of a group that conspired 
uh, to, to kill Hitler. It was just a few days from being freed and the Nazis in an act of unequal retribution decided that he would be hung. Now listen to what, with that, listen to what Wells says. He says, truth and integrity lie very close to one another. In the absence of what is true, which I think is the climate, the day and age in which we live. In the absence of what is true, all that remains are power and manipulation. What takes the place once occupied by truth are private agendas, community ideals, rhetorical force, savage Ad hominem attacks. Ad hominem means that you attack the person who's who's making the argument against you. So uh, you might say, I'm saying something that you, you don't agree with. And you say, I don't agree with that, Pastor Allen. Besides that, you're fat. Now, what does me being fat have to do with the argument that I'm presenting? Nothing. But you see, an ad hominem means to the man. It distracts attention away from what I'm saying and introduces another subject that has nothing to do with it at all. Besides that, Pastor Allen, not only are you fat, but you are ugly, and therefore your argument doesn't have any force. That's called an ad hominem attack. We've heard some of that in the last few months. What takes the place once occupied by truth are private agendas, community ideals, rhetorical force, savage ad hominem attacks, fabrications, exaggerations, and power seeking. In the absence of truth, he continues, lying becomes the common coin of the realm. It may be that there is no more destructive violation of a commandment than that commandment that says, thou shalt not bear false witness. It may be that we are witnessing that, in fact, in our culture today. People have subscribed to the idea that the ends justify the means, and so because our ends are pure, this is what we want to see bring about Um, We will lie, we will be untruthful, we will finagle, we will connive, we will start rumors, we will fabricate things just so our team can win. In the absence of truth, lying becomes the common coin of the realm. I think about that. I was thinking about that the other night. When the whole nation of Israel came to a standstill in the wilderness because one man had violated the command at Jericho, don't take any of the spoil. Remember this story? And God says, "Uh -uh uh-uh, there's sin in the camp. And what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask you all to take a survey of every family until you find out who it is. 
Now, you know, if I'm aching at that point, I'm thinking, you know, it might be a good idea to turn myself in. How about you? They're going row by row. The elders of the camp are visiting every house. Maybe it would be time to turn myself in and throw myself on their mercy. What is the first thing that is said to Achan when they begin their interrogation? My son, Achan, give glory to God. Give glory to God by telling the truth. When we lie, we do not give glory to God. When we lie, he becomes less because of our lie. And I think that that that's one of the most insidious and destructive forces that can be unleashed on a culture, a community, a nation, is that spirit of lying. God will send a strong delusion and they will believe in a lie and as a result be damned. The absence of truth lying becomes the common coin of the realm. Remember a few years ago uh, when our esteemed president number 44, Barack Hussein Obama, was addressing uh, the Congress and he made a statement and someone sat in the audience and said, you lie. And President Obama said, oh, no, 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 no. People have said, well, we live in a post-foundational society now. It doesn't matter what is true and what is a lie because nobody can determine what is true. Nobody, if, if you can't determine what is true, then you can't determine what is not true. Apparently, we don't live in a post-foundational society. Apparently, the truth still matters. The absence of truth lying becomes the common coin of the realm. And this lying takes on especially virulent forms when it becomes religious. Now, this was, in case you think that Wells is writing this post-Trump, it's not true. Uh, This, I think, The Courage to be Protestant was probably published, I think, about 10 years ago. He says, this lying takes on especially virulent forms when it becomes religious. For then God is pressed into service for our personal advantage. Here's an ominous warning. The stage is then set for terrible things to happen. So let's approach it this way, this problem of love. By me saying at the beginning that God's lavish grace, which is demonstrated in Christ. Don't overlook that idea, God's lavish grace. Grace, some people's concept of grace is, well, you do everything that you can. Here, Christy, you do everything that God requires for your salvation. You do it as much as you can, and once you get up to about 99%, because God loves you and God is going to save you by grace, God is going to give you that last 1%. So Christy's almost up over the wall by her own effort, 
And then God comes along and says, oh, that's a good girl, and pushes her the rest of the way over the wall. God's lavish grace recognized that you and I weren't even thinking about getting over the wall. We didn't care about getting over the wall. Since when does the mouse go looking for the cat? We were God's enemies. And the kind of love that God has is a seeking love. The hounds of heaven, one writer said, have been let loose on us. You ever see that movie? What was that movie with Burt Reynolds with the arrow and they were wilderness? Was that deliverance? You see the hound dogs in, in deliverance, remember? Or in that movie that Paul Newman was in where he was in jail and they were, Paul Newman was, he was the Christ figure in, in this movie. He kept on getting out of jail. And the hounds are on his trail and there's two little boys at the country store and he says, you, you guys want some fun? You can hear the hound dog go, and the boys, they nod their head like that. So he says, go in there and get, get some spices, some pepper, some paprika. And he pours that out as he walks away. And when the hound dogs finally show up and they start breathing in that stuff, they're like, when the hounds of heaven are on your trail, they are like that. They, they are going to chase you down. They're going to be on your trail until either you give up or you die. God's lavish grace demonstrated in Christ could be described as, here it is, big phrase, divine progressivism. Now, we associate the word progressive or progressivism with liberals. And um, that's another uh, rhetorical device that is called poisoning the well. They said, well, you know, I don't, I don't listen to anything that Pastor Allen has to say because he's a liberal. And right away, everybody who thinks they know what a liberal means, they say, oh yeah, that's right. He is, you know what? He is a liberal. So anything that he has to say, see, you've poisoned the well. You can't, nobody can take a drink out of that well any longer because I have been labeled as a liberal. Now, I, I want to say this to you. I consider myself as, as a conservative, but the, the situation in our country has gotten to the point where the extremes have become so extreme that now someone who might be labeled in other times as a moderate or as a, mo uh, a, a right of center, moderate conservative, is now labeled as a liberal. So there's, there's really, uh, unfortunately in our country right now, there's very little middle room. Either you're with us or you're against us. I saw somebody post on Facebook the other day. I'm just going to tell you this right now, that there's good and there's evil, and it's time for us to vote for the good. 
And then there's a whole string of comments saying, Amen, I'm with you, glory to God, hallelujah. And I, and I said, so I made a comment, no response. Very, very, you know, is, can we have a conversation? No. The, the answer apparently is no, we can't have a conversation. I said, since our nation is not a theocracy, and since our nation is a democratic republic, and since the citizens of the Democrat, Democratic Republic cannot agree on what is good and what is evil, could we explore what the founders of our nation meant when they coined the phrase, which they actually borrowed from those who had gone before them, the common good? Could I find some common good with someone who maybe doesn't believe the same way that I do? They may not be a believer at all. They may be an atheist, an agnostic, whatever. Could we find some way to live in community together by determining what is the common good? Here are the things that we are going to agree on. You say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, you know what? When it begins to snow and the snow plows don't show up on your street, and you don't call in and complain. Because it has been determined in our municipalities that it is for the common good that the municipality would hire some truck drivers and buy some trucks with plows and have them go out and plow the streets. This is for the common good of the community so that everyone can get to work the next day. So just, just hear me out on this idea of divine progressivism. It seems as though the eternal God is pulling us into our future. He's not pushing us. He is exerting a force on us. It's not a compelling force in that sense. It is drawing us into the future, even in the midst of our reluctance, even sometimes while we are actively resisting. For example, Truxton Stallings used to live in the corner of the West Wing over there. Uh, he was brought up under the, the ministry, the pastorship of Ben Pemberton. Ben Pemberton was a Republican and felt that all Democrats were going to hell. And the first Democrat that was going to go to hell was Franklin Delano Roosevelt because he put on the dole for everybody. Truxton used to sit there, and he'd be mad about something. I'd come in, on, and I'd hear him muttering to himself, a chicken in every pot. <laughs> and I'd say, what in the world are you talking about? And you had to know the person, the story, how it went all back together. But the idea was that this was some kind of communist influence. Now, look, you say, well, I'm not a progressive. How many of you out there this morning, I'll raise my hand, are collecting Social Security? How many of you look forward to collecting Social Security? Yeah. You are a progressive. And if I didn't like you, I would say that you are a liberal snowflake. So the progressive has the hard task of forging a path to the future while the reactionary conservative ultimately is forced to compromise or face being discarded as irrelevant. 
right? So this is, this is the battle between progressives and I would say reactionary conservatives. Conservatives want to conserve. They don't want to change. Uh, progressives, on the other hand, said change is inevitable. And in the midst of all this, God is saying, come on, come on, keep walking. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Remember that scripture? Come on, come this way. Come on. You can do it. You can make it. There's only one being who can say, this is Malachi. I am the Lord. Look, I'm the Lord. I change not. And because the Lord doesn't change, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So there's only one being who doesn't change, and that being is not you. That being is not me. That being is not a collective us. That is the Lord God Almighty. I would further say that progressives seem to have history in their favor. One example, the Bible-believing Christians of the antebellum South before the war, Civil War, were convinced that slavery was biblically permissible. Interesting book written by Mark Knoll, a Wheaton professor and scholar, the title of, of the book, The Civil War as a Theological Issue. You might have come across this in, in your reading or your study. Christians in the North who became known as the social progressive social movement known to us in history as the abolitionists. Christians in the North were, were quoting verses from the Bible that said that slavery was not of God. Christians in the South, and, and this is the difference historically, if you go back and look at it, this is the difference between Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists. Christians in the South were saying, no, 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 everywhere in the scripture, you know, King James Version, slaves obey your masters. They said, there it is. The Christians in the North said, well, that just re reflected the present reality. It doesn't mean that God approved of it. And then the Christians in the South, well, it certainly seems like God doesn't prohibit it. Nowhere does he say, go sell all your slaves. Christians in the North were divided on the issue, but Eventually, the anti-slavery progressive social movement that we retrospectively know as the abolitionists coalesced behind Lincoln's controversial leadership, and we know the end of the story. There was a great civil war, but eventually the Union was uh, preserved and, and the North prevailed. You know, simply say the South didn't want to change. The North, on the other hand, insisted on it, and history once again sided with progressivism at a great cost, a cost, it might be argued, and if you ever get a chance to read Lincoln's second inaugural address, he is thinking out loud about, there it is, the, the Civil War is over. He is soon to be assassinated because of the position that he took. But he's thinking out loud. He's quoting scripture in the second inaugural address. History tells us that there were freed slaves in the audience who were responding to Lincoln's address when Lincoln would quote a scripture. They would say, 
Mm, yes, Lord. It's a great cost. And I, I would suggest today that that cost is still being tallied. The price has not yet been paid. Occasionally we hear the cry from some poor human being, the South will rise again. You can even see it on Facebook at times. But most of us dismiss it as wishful thinking, I was going to say, but it's wishful unthinking that is not credibly threatening. That the South's mission was to conserve its past is inarguable. Uh, Richard Weaver described the South as a hall hung with splendid tapestries in which no one would care to live. Remember Carol Burnett coming down the sweeping steps with that curtain rod across her shoulders and the curtains on her? And it said, well, what a beautiful dress. Oh, it was just a little something I saw hanging in the window. Remember that? You people need to watch more TV. <laughs> That's the image that I have in my mind when I when I read this. Here it is. It's the it's a beautiful plantation, uh, filled with furniture and tapestries. The old South, but nobody wants to live in it. According to Weaver, the South had a fixation on four virtues. First, the feudal concept of society which included, by the way, slavery. Second, the code of chivalry. If you watch Gone with the Wind, the Confederate soldiers are so, well, I don't know about you, Mr. Smith, but we need to go outside right now, sir, and take care of this problem. Choose your weapon. <laughs> Just think that this, this is actually how arguments were were solved with honor. Two men put their backs together with the revolvers up in the air and take 10 paces and then turn around and shoot. How many are glad you don't live in that kind of a society? Third, the ancient concept of the gentleman. And fourth, this one shouldn't surprise us. Religion. And Weaver goes on to modify the word religion. He qualified religion as religiousness. You know, a feeling tone. It's kind of like the word truthy. It's not really true, but it's got enough. It sounds like the truth. Religiousness which he said has little relations to creeds. Now, what we've seen in 1 John is that we have, we have creedal inklings throughout the book. Christ Jesus is our propitiation. You have to confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Popular church in America today suffers from this religiousness that has, it's a culture that has little relation to creeds. In some circles, this is known as Southern charm. 
But today we recognize that millions were victimized by these fixations that eventually piled up into centuries of prejudice and violence against humans. Now listen to me, a person typically does not believe, I'm still talking about divine progressivism here. A person typically does not believe the same things as an adult that they did as a child. Now, although the color red doesn't change, if you're five years old or if you're 65 years old. Now, there's lots of variations of red, but red is red is red. Although the color red doesn't change from age to age, even the Apostle Paul admitted in that great soliloquy of love in 1 Corinthians 13, he admitted that when he was a child, he thought like a child. He also admitted that he had progressed to thinking like a man or human. As a child, I can gaze at the moon at night and say, oh, the moon is made out of green cheese. And as a child, that's a relatively harmless belief. But if I persist as an adult, as a 45-year-old man, and I tell everybody, you know, the moon's made out of cheese. And I believe the moon is made out of cheese because... When I was a young boy, my parents told me the moon was made out of cheese. And they even wrote, read out of books that asserted that the moon was made out of cheese. And every other adult hears that assertion, that confession of faith, and they shake their heads, and hopefully somebody would take pity on me at that moment and draw me aside and enlighten me as to what you believed as a child is not necessarily true as when you become an adult. I would never presume to tell anybody who to vote for. In our nation, even in our secular age, voting is a private, sacred act. And even if I were going to tell you who to vote for, I don't know who to tell you to vote for. I Frankly, I just, I, I still got a question so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I would never presume to tell anybody you need to go vote for this for, or even lean in that direction. I think that you, you know my heart, you know me well enough to be able to listen to what I have to say this morning. But this year... We're faced with a presidential election that could be described, and yes, at the risk of over, oversimplifying, as a choice between a conservative and a progressive. Depending on which side of the aisle you are, I love this statement by Dan Scott. He says, you know, he says, when the plane is going down, whether you sit on the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle doesn't make a whole lot of difference. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter who ends up being the winner in this election? We are still in a whole world of mess. And the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to have the answer for this mess. So I'm, you know, I, Christy, Christy's already rolling her eyes this morning. Christy says to me every day, she says, please don't say anything on Facebook. Please don't post anything on Facebook. I said, I haven't, I haven't posted anything on Facebook. It's kind of a, it's a truthism. <laughs> yeah. 
It's kind of a truthyism. But free speech is one of the guarantees of the Constitution, right? So you have a right to speak your mind. I have a right to speak my mind. We all have a, we can get in a big fight and an argument, right? I should be willing to defend to the point of death your right as an American to say what, what you think is, is right. Even if I disagree with it. Somebody posted on Facebook the other day, bless God, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah. This is the answer to the election this year. Vote the Bible. And everybody's like, that's it? Amen. That's the answer. Vote the Bible. And typically that admonition carries uh, pro-life overtones. In other words, they're saying uh, on this on this particular issue of abortion, anti-abortion, you need to vote the Bible. We're told that the choice is simple. We're told just read your Bible and vote. Now, I think a, a case could be made that the Bible is largely indifferent to politics. Uh, Jesus has a conversation with Pilate, and he's... Remember, he told one of his disciples, you go tell that fox. And the original word there, fox, would be better translated as a dog. He was calling this politician a dog. I think a case could be made that the Bible is largely indifferent to politics. It's, here's the Bible's position. God raises up. <laughs> And God brings down. You can be the most powerful person on the face of the earth, and tomorrow you can be on all fours eating grass like an animal. So that's our default position, right? Some trust in chariots, some, in, some trust in horses, but we will depend on the name of the Lord our God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. We're neither this or that. We're the, we're the third choice. We're, we're something different. But still this idea persists to vote the Bible. And, and I'm reminded of Robert Ingersoll, America's most famous agnostic. He said that Christians believe the Bible because they don't read it. Christians believe the Bible because they don't read it. Have you read the Bible? If you ever go through one of those things, you're going to read the Bible in a year. By the time you get to Leviticus, where it talks about killing animals and slicing them open and give the fat to God and uh, you, you can't roast it, can't, it's got to be boiled. Stick the hook in the pot. What comes up is the priest. We used to sing in this church years ago, 40 plus years ago, a song for the children. The time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is to make others happy and have a little heaven down here. Do you know that that was Robert Ingersoll's theme song? You see how unthinking we can be? Well, that sounds 
you know, I like the beat of that song, and I like those words. The place to be happy is here. The time to be happy is now. The way to be happy is to make others happy. Well, that, America's greatest agnostic sang that song because he didn't believe in an afterlife, and so the place to be happy is here. The time to be happy is now. The way to be happy is to make others happy. This is all the heaven you're going to get. So one of the singular impressions of reading the Bible consistently and comprehensively is that from front to back, the scriptures present a progressive revelation. We no longer stone homosexuals, nor do we consult the entrails of an animal for divine direction. Jesus himself was eminently progressive in his interpretation of how the law should be applied. So have you read the Bible? Maybe you... Maybe you read the Bible because you overheard somebody quote a scripture from the, how many think that this scripture is in the Bible? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Yes, my pastor preached a sermon series for 12 weeks on that. Never consulted the Bible because it would have messed the, his sermon series up. There is a quote unquote Bible culture is, that is developed in the popular church of America that really, it doesn't matter what the Bible says because they know what the Bible says. And we're in trouble because of it. Jesus himself was killed because they didn't like him saying, you've heard that it was said in old times, uh, thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you. Here comes the progressive revelation. Now, this, this is, you're still working under Moses, a new Moses, a greater than Moses is here. In fact, before Abraham was, I am. He was the change agent. No wonder, I'm surprised they waited three and a half years to kill him. You say, oh, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm not guilty. I'm not culpable of the sin of murder. And then Jesus says, but I say unto you, if you are angry with your brother, and we, we always put in there without a cause, because that's what it said in the King James Version. Now the Bible scholars say us, tell us the oldest manuscripts don't even have that phrase, that Jesus was saying, if you're angry with your brother, it's just like murdering a person. We, we, don't, we don't like to hear Jesus, men don't like to hear Jesus talk about you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, but if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's the kind of stuff that gets people killed. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. We've never been in bondage to any person. That's what they said to Jesus in John chapter 8. We're, we have provenance. We are direct descendants of Abraham. And yet you have the audacity to stand there and say, he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. We've never been in bondage to anybody. Proud, arrogant, on their way to destruction. So the, the issue this year, we've, we've been told to vote the Bible, and we've been, been told to vote on a single issue. And that single issue is an important issue. It is the care of the preborn. And we've been admonished to ignore the antics of, of President Trump and vote on the single issue of 
anti-abortion. Yet conversely, if in fact we would read the whole Bible, the Bible demonstrates care not only for the preborn, but also for the almost dead. A culture will be judged on how it cares for its weakest members, the youngest, the oldest. How will God judge us if we demonstrate more interest in what has become the political football of abortion, anti-abortion, the preservation of prenatal personhood than we did in the less controversial, less interesting, mundane, and more costly postnatal personhood? Well, okay, we're, we're going to fight for the right for you to be born, but when you come into the world, <laughs> we are, we're not going to help. We're not going to help you get a life at all. You are on your own. Buck up. Pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. It seems to me that the harshness and vitriol that we've heard expressed on the Christian reactionary right is from people who've not, I believe this, who have not truly understood the sweeping paradigm shift of God's lavish grace. Sometimes they've been raised in and attend churches where God is approachable only if certain conditions are met. In other words, God's grace, God's love for you is based on certain conditions. Don't approach me unless you've tried your very best to clean yourself up. Don't come to me as the mess that you are. Be manageable. There are millions of churches in America that don't understand the nature of the gospel. You can become a part of our church if you become good first. And we don't really care whether the impugned righteousness of Jesus Christ ever arrives in your life or not. Just, just act good like the rest of us. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. Come to church. We'll eat some chili together. We'll have a good time. Some people, God is quixotically vengeful. God they serve, worship on Sunday mornings, often upset, poised to unleash punishment on all those who disagree with them. You know, eschatology is like spin the wheel and choose which eschatological interpretation you're going to believe today. None of the ecumenical creeds of the church mention eschatology at all. But with some people, you would say that the Antichrist Glory to God, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and the seven years of tribulation, and the rapture. If you don't believe this is the only, this is this is the, this is what the Bible teaches, and then you say, um, "Well, have you ever thought about this?" And then they, then you just see that hollow look in their eyes. They begin to back away and warn everybody. I think we got a liberal here. We got a liberal. We got a progressive. Look, perpetuating ignorance in any culture or society will never come to any good end. Add to this mixture bad or absent parenting. If you were raised in a family where you had a mother and father that were present, you are blessed. You are blessed. 
Because as a child, your early views about God as your father are often determined by that family unit. We got a lot of mad, upset, angry people right now who have come out of broken relationships in their family that they, they, all, they, they don't understand the fatherhood of God. When we sing this song this morning, I know Christy would just like to dance around. And me too, Some I would join in when we sing that song. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And because you're a good, good father, I am who I am. You see the relationship that, it, and if you don't have that relationship, if you don't know God as as the scripture text tells us in Revelation chapter 7, when we all get together, God is going to be our shepherd and our protector. These people function ostensibly as disciples of Jesus, but it's almost as if Jesus never showed up, that Jesus never became a human, Jesus never suffered and died for the sins of the whole world. No matter what happens this week, the fact of the matter is we're, you and I, if you classify you as yourself as a true believer, we're going to have to learn how to deal with these people who are mean-spirited, boxed in, they're fighting mad, but they still self-identify as a Christian. Many of these people no longer attend church, but they still consider themselves to be a Christian. And the reason why they don't attend church is because they can find a local church that expresses the same beliefs, the same opinions, and the same prejudices that they subscribe to. They constitute a church of one. They can't find a church that they can fit into. So they sit home, they still got their Bible, they still believe, but there's no covenant community. They measure themselves by themselves. They have nothing to compare to, no one to converse with and say, well, brother, that's an interesting idea, but have you ever thought about this? Or what about this scripture? They sit at home and they get fossilized in their own structure and belief system. And they don't understand why, why is the world going to hell in a handbasket? It's called obscurantism. It's the picture of the ostrich who's got his head buried in the sand. And because there's no discipline in the popular church in America, you and I, we don't have a clue as to what to do with these people. They are ornery. They are, they are unmanageable. They are unquantifiable. When you begin to talk about to them about the lavishness of God's grace, <laughs> they're like, but we're in a hell of a mess in this country, and somebody needs to straighten it out. Glory to God. That's the gospel. One thing is obvious, younger people, those who have given up on traditional approaches to doing church, who have left traditional churches in droves, the 30-somethings and under, they now gladly mark the box none on a survey. Uh, what is your belief system? Are you Christian? Are you Muslim? Are you Baha'i? What it, mark the box. And they gladly mark, go to the box that says none. 
This is known in church circles as the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the rise of the nuns. But you know what? Eventually old people die and young people grow up. And you know why that happens? It's because time is on the side of young people. When I was a boy visiting my grandfather in Maine, uh, the TV, they didn't have much much in that house. You, you had to go to the kitchen and pump water, <laughs> but they had a color TV. We had no TV. So when I went on vacation in Maine, anytime the TV was on, I don't care what was on it. I got to watch, what was it, CBS or NBC used to have the movie of the night on Sunday nights, which I didn't have a hope of watching at home in Connecticut because it was on Sunday nights. On Sunday nights, you were in church. But inevitably, unfailingly, my, my grandfather would have the CBS Evening News turned on with Walter Cronkite. This is Walter Cronkite. Remember that? Richard Nixon said, I might as well as give up. He said, if I've lost Walter Cronkite on the Vietnam War, he says, I don't, even though I'm the president of the United States, I'm not, I don't have the power, the ability to change American opinion if Walter Cronkite is siding against me. One night when the coverage was campus unrest and violence, my grandfather said to me with great conviction, he was born in England, four brothers and sisters. He spoke like an Englishman. I didn't get that. How can you live in Maine and speak like a Briton? He says, I'm going to tell you one thing, Allie. What they need to do is they need to set up a machine gun and mow them all down. Now, even as a boy, nine, 10 years old, I knew that wasn't the solution. <laughs> that wasn't the solution. Old ways die hard. But the truth of the matter is they eventually and inevitably die. I titled this message, The Love Problem. Ever since I began to preach, and to pastor. I always concerned those, when the Bible talked about love, that that was kind of an ancillary topic. It was off to the side. In the beginning of my ministry, what I thought was the commanding text, the, the text, the epitome of text, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was the hermeneutic principle, the principle of interpretation that governed my opinion about every other scripture. In other words, that was the height. Everything existed at a lower level than that. I was young, as David said, and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken even when their seed is begging for bread. I've never, never seen the righteous forsaken. Some of you have been here for the full 40-year journey. You know what the story is. I have to confess to you, when I, when I looked at scriptures in the Bible that talk about love, when I read the end of 1 Corinthians 13, listen to me, just, just for five more minutes. When, when I heard 
Paul say, now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I was like, all those compromising liberal preachers that talk about love all the time. We can't miss it in the text. Here, John, verses 1 through 6, the perils of the surging life of the Spirit. You can't believe every spirit. You have to try the spirits. How do you try the spirits? Every spirit, every person that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And by the way, they will listen to us. <laughs> okay, John. And then we move into, look at it, so you don't think that I'm fabricating something. Then we move into verse 7. Beloved, here it is. This is important, John is saying. Creedal correctness is important. You must believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But let me throw this into the mix. Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You could be theologically correct. Here's what I had to learn in my life. I could be theologically correct and still have hatred in my heart. I could prove to you chapter and verse. And this is why people, they get, they get, they get nervous. I was on a Zoom meeting the other night, and one of the one of the participants in the Zoom meeting brought up the subject of free will. And the person said, well, everybody knows we have free will. The person who was hosting the Zoom class said immediately, we're not getting into the subject of free will on this discussion tonight, not with Alan Ellis in this class. I was like, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to talk about it, actually. We've heard the phrase before that people will walk away from a conversation with you. They may forget everything that you have said, but they will remember the spirit in which you said it. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know where the church in America is going, but I'm here to tell you, we cannot violate the scriptures when it comes to the law of Christ, the law of love. Somehow, we're going to have to figure out, this, this. I'm preaching to me, I'm going to have to figure out how to believe what I think the, the scriptures teach and still have a loving spirit. Paul calls that speaking the truth in love. Nobody's done that. If the church in America can figure out how to do that, we will save people, we will save culture. It's possible that God would send such revival and reformation that we could save the nation, but we don't have a chance. 
unless we can figure this out. How to speak the truth in love. I'll close with this. Tony Campola, you can Google him. He, he's an interesting preacher. It's hard to quantify what camp Tony Campola is in, but the people on the right say he's a progressive. He was preaching to a large congregation of evangelicals about third world famine victims. And you say, well, well, you know, this is a this social gospel thing. It's not that you, you, you go and you read Matthew chapter 25. Here is the judgment of the world, goats on the left, sheep on the right. And what is the issue? The issue wasn't, were you an Arminian? Were you a Calvinist? Were you a high Calvinist? Were you a hyper Calvinist? Did you believe that you had to speak in tongues to get to heaven? None of those issues that we have cultivated over the years as having a certain amount of importance in our lives. It's not, it's just like, did you see somebody that was hungry? Did you give them something to eat? Did you hear that somebody was in jail and you went to visit them? Did you hear that somebody was thirsty and you gave them something to drink? Those those are the issues, Jesus. Well, Campola's preaching away to this large congregation of evangelicals and his subject is just this subject, the subject of Matthew 25 about third world famine victims. And he said, this is what he said. I don't, I don't think that I would say it, but I would quote it. He says, they're starving and you don't give a damn. And what's worse, he said, you are more upset that I just said damn than these people are starving. Boom. We got God in our box. 34 million people in this country, and this is from 2019, 34 million people live below the poverty line. The greatest most powerful, richest, quote-unquote Christian nation on the face of the earth, and we got millions of kids at night going to bed hungry. Father, help us. It's so easy. So easy for us to major on things that from the divine perspective, are really minor issues. We know that there are important issues. Important issues which the Bible speaks to. That in the public square, we as Christians have the right And even if we didn't have the right, we should raise our voice and proclaim the truth Father, we ask you, how can we do this and still demonstrate the greatest demonstration of the greatest virtue in life, which is love. The greatest demonstration was that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ask you, Father, to have mercy on us. 
have mercy on our culture. Do not give us over wholesale to judgment. Father, but even now this morning, through the Holy Spirit, draw us to our knees, O Father. Wake us up in the middle of the night. Give us a song to sing. Give us an attitude to share. Give us words of hope to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.